0: The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Rev. Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers.
1: You're invited to take out your pew Bible and turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, because we don't mind if you check our work. Now, after John was arrested, As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Herein's the reading of the word inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation.
2: The story of the call of Simon, his brother Andrew, and the sons of Zebedee. James and John is a story that just wants to slip past us unnoticed because it just sounds like preliminaries, this rather pedestrian task of choosing the players before the game starts, which, like going over the rules and tossing the coin, all come before what really matters, which is the game itself. Besides, we all tend to read the Bible from some particular vantage point, usually looking over the shoulder of Jesus. Of course those fishermen dropped everything and followed him. After all, it's Jesus we're talking about here. And if Jesus asked me to do something, anything, well, I'd do it, of course. It's Jesus, well, except sell everything I have, give the money to the poor, and follow him. But that's another sermon. One of the things I try to do in reading scripture, whether on my own behalf or yours, is to just move the camera around for a different vantage point, for a different angle. When I first heard this story in Sunday school, uh, it was what we used to call, the kids would call, a no-brainer. What we focused on was, wow, the amazing good fortune of these guys. Working stiffs one minute, apostles the next. I mean, they're in the right place at the right time. Struggling fishermen, who become part of the 12. They don't even go home and change. It also never occurred to me as a child that they might have said, no thanks, or, "Um, and who are you again? Or, what exactly does it mean, fish for people, and and what does it pay? Fred Craddock used to say, if no is not a real possibility, then yes means nothing. Not only that, but remember, four said yes, but at least one very important person said no, for all practical purposes, as did the hired men in the boat, probably day laborers. A central but forgotten character in this drama is Zebedee, the founder and CEO of Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company of Capernaum. Nobody ever preaches this text from the viewpoint of the dad the one who gets left behind, the one whose sons abandon him in an instant to follow an itinerant rabbi whose mental health will one day be called into question. This was the family business, and the two most important employees have just quit. Isn't that special? Why doesn't anyone think about Zebedee? Maybe, maybe this bothers me because I am the father of two sons. And I'm just trying to imagine that they work for me. Well, which would have its own challenges, but just for the (laughs) sake of the example. And then I watch my boys just drop everything one day and wander off to become part of what? A band of spiritual gypsies? If we are reading literally, then Jesus just put Zebedee out of business. For years, he'd struggled to get his sons up in the morning to mend nets and sometimes, of course, to fish all night. Then along comes a Galilean sage who doesn't seem to have a real job himself and and calls them from the shore and immediately, Mark's favorite word, they drop their nets and follow him. And notice they don't hire their own replacements while they are off getting this disciple thing out of their system. They just leave. what I mean, you see what I mean about this camera angle? Just pan over to the old man's face and it's a different story. He probably thinks his sons have just joined a cult. At the dinner table, maybe, he grumbles to Mrs. Zebedee about that day the boys up and left. So have you heard from them lately? Hmm? Do you even know where they are? And she says, don't, don't raise your voice at me. I didn't leave, and besides, maybe they needed something different to do. You're not always easy to work for. Why don't you trust the unfolding universe a bit more? It's not all about you. A second problem with this rather innocent-sounding story is that some people hear it, and they immediately begin to wonder if they have what it takes to be a disciple. Because what it sounds like is that this requires a kind of irrational Urgency, a split second decision where one turns in a new direction and never looks back. And so we wonder could we do it? Could you do it? Could you abandon your grocery cart in front of the frozen food case at the supermarket and run out of the store, setting off for parts unknown without even calling home? Maybe tell your boss one day, I quit. I'm going to form my own nonprofit. Or just consider our own Emily Bounds, who with the help of her wife Haley has been working with our kids in the youth group and they just moved to Lubbock, Texas. That's Lubbock, not Austin. (laughs) Their parents are still in a state of shock, but you see Emily got a call, and I'm not talking about a phone call. She believes that she has been called by God to become a community organizer in Lubbock. When we gathered at their house recently to say goodbye, her dad, Mike Bounds, who was a fixture at 363, stood with her mom, Debbie, and they thanked everyone for coming and Mayflower for all we had done for their family. And then, with a slightly different tone of voice, he said, you guys have changed our lives, and because of you, my daughter is moving to Lubbock. (laughs) And we said, oh, um, you're welcome. (laughs) A few years ago, one of my heroes died. His name was Sergeant Shriver, the man who started the Peace Corps. He started it because President Kennedy called him and asked him to. Shriver would go to mass every morning, and. Someone said once every morning, that's a lot of church. I just do Christmas and Easter myself. And Shriver said, well, I cannot do what I do without God in my life. One of the interesting details in this story is that Andrew and Simon don't have a boat. They're casting their net into the sea from the shore, so they have no boat. The brothers Zebedee are a little higher up the food chain. They have a boat which probably is is not paid for. So they're walking away from much more. And there's something else that's unusual here. The first century uh, had had its rules and one of them was rabbis don't recruit their own students. Students seek out their rabbi. And it was the custom for a teacher of wisdom to wait for people to come to him and then He would interview them carefully before deciding whether or not to take them on. Only the promising students were allowed to stay, the ones who showed real promise and devotion, so no self-respecting rabbi would ever have gone out to recruit his own followers, and if he had, he would not have picked the first four fishermen he laid eyes on. He would have conducted job interviews properly and then said to some of them, "Uh, don't call me, I'll call you. But not even this is the strangest thing. The strangest thing is that whether it happened instantaneously or not, since Mark is remembering and writing this story decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what we do know for certain is that a dozen less than stellar characters did follow him, including a tax collector named Levi. A tax collector. I mean, Really? Who is advising Jesus about his team? You're going on the road with the kingdom of God band, and your drummer is a tax collector? This is what we would call today bad optics. But by far the biggest mistake we make when we read a story like this is to assume that it's more heroic than it is tragic. We think we could never do this because we lack the faith of an apostle, but remember, these are fishermen, not pious, observant Jews. I'll bet they fished on the Sabbath, and chances are they are broke. Fishing was not profitable. The empire had found ways to tax fishermen to death, and they borrowed and borrowed and borrowed just to keep working so they could lose and lose and lose more money until someone came and repossessed their boat." I think these men followed not because they expected to become heroes but because they wanted to try something else, anything else, or maybe, just maybe, there was a God-sized hole in their hearts. I don't think this is the story of remarkable men but of the remarkable power of God to change the lives of unremarkable people, to use the most flawed and weary of us to change the world to sneak up on the likes of you and me and claim us in the blink of an eye. Not so long ago, in a town called Montgomery, Alabama, a woman named Rosa Parks got on a bus with tired feet. She was not expecting a call from God. She just sat down. Martin Luther King Jr. did not set out to be the voice of the civil rights movement. As I said last Sunday, he came to it reluctantly. But God said, I've given you that voice, so what are you gonna do with it? Follow me. As long as we continue to believe that ordinary people are not the ones that God sneaks up on, then of course, we will leave the work of the kingdom to so-called extraordinary people. And the truth is, we don't know who they are and neither do they. Or if they do know, if they think they're extraordinary, you've got a whole different set of problems. You think Lech Valenza got up one day had a particularly good bowl of oatmeal and decided to lead the Solidarity movement in Poland? Do you think Nelson Mandela had his life planned out this way? Let's see, uh, 20 years in prison, come out smiling, and then get elected president of South Africa. Or take Albert Schweitzer, the greatest Christian in the 20th century, in my opinion, who was so unorthodox in his beliefs, he would have been pronounced a heretic a man who walked away from every good gift the world can offer, German high society, a doctorate in music, a doctorate in theology, a doctorate in philosophy, life tenure at one of the best universities in Europe, but something was missing. There was a God-sized hole in Schweitzer's heart. So at age 30, he goes back to school to become a doctor of medicine. So he could walk away from everything The world had given him all these treasures to build a jungle clinic to heal people his friends considered the most backward and insignificant inhabitants on the planet. At night, after a long day of surgeries, Schweitzer would play classical organ music on a special instrument provided to him by the Paris Bach Society. And so his sleeping patients, not to mention a jungle alive with animals, would hear, would hear Bach floating over the trees next to rivers teeming with crocodiles. After hours, Schweitzer wrote a book on the philosophy of human culture, a book on the mysticism of Paul, and of course the definitive work on the historical Jesus. He did this in his spare time. What was he doing? He was following he believed there was no other way to know jesus or to be intoxicated by god perhaps we overanalyze this to our detriment we speak of certain people as having a calling that is someone or something called and they answered that call and now they can no more turn and go back than could simon andrew james and john pick their nets back up and say, no thanks, we have reconsidered and even fishing is better than this. When people spoke of Jesus as being possessed by demons, and there are several such references in the New Testament, I think it was a natural response to what people saw that seemed inexplicable. In a sense, all deeply spiritual people seem possessed because they have so completely gotten themselves out of the way. Ask a musician to explain her talent. She'll always step aside. The music comes through me, she says. I'm I'm merely a vessel, a channel. God assures his prophets like Jeremiah that when the time comes, words will be provided so don't worry about your vocabulary. Art, art is the mediation of transcendence through imperfect means. What Marcus Borg called the something more, which was his name for God, calls and we follow. And through us, people see beauty and truth and it's contagious. The luminous web makes goodness contagious and it can work with the smallest act and through the most insignificant actor. If you just hold a door open for someone today, you will change the world. If Monday comes and the government is still shut down, think about someone you know who's a civil servant and invite him over for dinner. Tell him how much you appreciate the work he does. Thank every teacher you meet for the work they do. And if you know a dreamer, tell her you'll pray for her. But not only that, tell her you know a church that might be able to help her go with her to a deportation hearing. Or, if you feel like dropping even the safety net that is self protection, hide her. Hide her from a president who doesn't have a clue about her life. He's too busy writing his own name real big. Here's our question For what times have we been called to be the church? Here's the answer these times. And Lori's right, they're weird. But, but we don't have to do anything flashy. They also serve who mend nets, not just those who drop them. They also serve who, who meet as deacons on Saturday morning, like they did yesterday to learn how, how do you serve communion without dropping stuff. They also serve who pick up Kleenex in the pews after a memorial service and see that they are still wet with tears. They also serve who clean hotel rooms at night, and they deserve protection and bedpans in the hospital. Who is more heroic than a mother or father who stays home to care for a sick child at the risk of losing a job? The world is held together by a tapestry of unself important kindness that does not need to be noticed. The luminous web records everything, everything, because there is unlimited storage in that cloud. You could argue that when Lori and I called a special meeting to discuss how to become a sanctuary church, we did not know what we were doing. You would be right. Or that when you signed up to help, you did not know what you were doing, and you would be right. Right? or that when we go to conduct our first vigil at the ICE office near here, on a day and time not to be announced from the pulpit, to make a witness on behalf of the people politicians are using to win instead of serving to help, none of us will know what we are doing. None of us. But lest we forget, knowledge is not redemptive. Love is. What we stumble through for the right reasons God will complete what we fear will not work God will work with what we find hopeless when we feel helpless God will come up under as if we're suddenly weightless and will realize that even though things do not go as planned that does not mean there is no plan sometimes the net we drop is our own safety net As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Really? Immediately, they didn't talk about it, they didn't visit about it, they didn't Have a beer first. I don't. Just really fish for people? Can't you see I'm busy here fishing for fish? And who are you again? Well, the rest is history, they say. I don't think so. I don't think this is history at all. I think we spend all our lives at the edge of one kind of lake or another, wondering if what we heard was God calling or just thunder The time is coming, and now is, when we won't have the luxury of arguing which it is, God or thunder. We'd best drop our nets and follow. And if someone wants to know where we're going, well, we'll just tell them straight up. "Um, Where are we going? Um, Let's see. Yeah, where are you going? Well, let's see. Um, Where am I going? Yeah, where are you going? You don't even know, do you? Liberals, they never know where they're going. Well, not exactly. So how, how are you going to get there if you don't know where you're going? Well, I'm not sure. You're not sure. So who's going with you? Don't tell me you're traveling alone. Oh, no, no, I can answer that question. I never travel alone. Uh, oh, and I think I know the answer to your other question, where are you going? I'm going home.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., with adult education classes at 10 a.m., and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.